life can be tricky, making us ask, what was that? Join host Jan Murray and her guests as they explore the that's of life. Welcome to Life After That. everyone this is Jan Murray your hostess for life after that today we are welcoming Cynthia Snyder she's going to share her story about her husband Billy who passed away about seven years ago from amyotrophic lateral sclerosis so we're going to pick right up with her talking about Billy and his life both before ALS his life during ALS and then toward the end. He was a, a meat cutter. He was a, a meat manager for a supermarket chain here where we live. And uh, he started noticing probably about a year and a half before he was diagnosed that he just didn't feel his strength was the same and he couldn't get the cases of meat up on the top shelf of the cooler as easily as he used to. And he mentioned it to the doctor at a physical, and the doctor said, oh, you've been on cholesterol medicine for 10 years. It was a statin, and they had just figured out statins were causing muscular yep. uh, you know, problems. So the doctor said, let's take you off, off the cholesterol medicine and see what happens. And so he went off of it, and he was the kind of guy that didn't like to go to the doctor, um, so I really, you know, he wasn't saying too much and I kind of lost track because we raised six children and we had a busy life. And um, so I, I didn't ask him, you know, how he was doing. And then he wasn't looking good to me about a year after that. Mm -hmm. He started looking thin and um, I got him on the scale and I'm like, Billy, you've lost over 20 pounds. I don't think that's normal you know are you are you feeling better since you're off the statin what's going on and he said well now that you mention it he said last week when the t-bones were on sale I was trying to cut through the meat and my brain was telling my hand to move back and forth but I couldn't get my hand to push down into the meat I wasn't getting anywhere I'm like oh this isn't normal. And that was December of 2014. And so the holidays were coming up. And he said, look, after the holidays, we'll go back to the doctor and I'll get a physical and see what's going on. And, uh, you know, when you're living with somebody every day and their looks change and their weight changes, you don't notice as much as other people. And right. my Daughter-in-law, my daughter-in-law's parents, who we were very close friends with, my son and daughter-in-law dated from high school, so we knew them a lot of years. We got invited to their house for New Year's, and they kind of acted funny with us throughout the, the um, get-together. And I get home, and I get a call from her mother, and she's crying on the phone. She's like, Cynthia, there's something definitely wrong with Billy. Like, he looks horrible. And... So I took him to the ER the next day. I'm like, you know, we're not even messing around anymore, Billy. You know, I probably should have forced you to go to the doctor like a month ago. And we went into the ER and they had an attitude with me because now I'm flustered because he's been sick for a while. Mm -hmm. And of course, to them, I'm just this woman coming in making demands. Mm -hmm. 
I have a medical background. So I said, I want a CAT scan. I want this. I want that. And the nurse was like, you can't just come in here and tell us what's, you know, what tests you're on on your husband. And I'm like, there's something seriously wrong with him. I need to find out what it is. So the ER doctor came in. He was a really nice man, probably our age. And he said, look, he said, we'll do a CAT scan, but I think this is neurologic. I don't know what it is, he said, but I just, I've been at this a long time. He said, there's something neurological going on. So they gave us a referral to a neurologist. The CAT scan was, was fine. And now this is January, 2015. We go to this neurologist for, and, and now Jan, I, I'm like, I'm at the point where I want, I want some kind of an answer because from my perspective, I had to the doctor already. He's lost all this weight. The relatives are all making me feel like why I didn't notice this. Like it was my responsibility to get into the doctor and he didn't want to go. So now right. I'm like, I want answers. So the, the neurologist sitting there and he says to my husband, count backwards from a hundred. Who's the president? Like, well, wait a second. We're not in here for Alzheimer's. Okay, my right. husband is having some kind of muscular problem going on. So he made me go in the waiting room. And um, I, I just we left there. My husband was so upset. We didn't have any answers. So the next day I'm at work and uh, the president of the company and I are sitting down and I was crying the blues to him. And he said, hold on a second. He made a call. His neighbor was head of anesthesiology for Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson University Hospital here in Philadelphia, and they got us in the very next day with the top neurologist for okay. Thomas Jefferson, and he did it. He did an EMG, and he was immediately diagnosed that day with ALS. Wow! <clears throat> did they do the needle EMG or whatever to try to determine, or they just yeah? Yeah, yeah. that's did. what finally now that's what husband... determined mine too. Was the my husband. We, I guess it was probably a year. We had neck surgery and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, the doctor that did that, he said, and he said the same words you just said. He said, something neurological is happening. Your gate's off. You know, something's wrong. And uh, in a needle EMG, a second one actually um, is what they said. Yep, this is ALS. I mean, yay. <laughs> I say that. Just <laughs> In a sarcastic manner now, it, it it was weird, honestly, even though we knew it was possibility because Bill already had two brothers with ALS. His was familial, but they don't know what genetic factors are involved in the Murray family. We've had genetic testing done and uh, they've not found what they don't. They've never uh. discovered the mutation that's affecting this family because it, it got his baby brother, his older brother him and uh, a sister died almost a year ago from it so all that's left is my husband's twin brother and an older sister out of six kids it's taken four of them and they don't know why that's incredible that's yeah. incredible oh that must be a little frightening for you with your with your biological children with now, well, my children, children, my children are adopted. Uh, they will tell you they're glad they're adopted, but you know, I worry about my yeah. my nephews and my nieces, and um, all of our biological children unfortunately passed away after birth. Um, maybe that I don't know. Maybe that was some kind of salvation for them. I don't know. My, ch I'm glad my children are adopted uh, because I at least don't have to worry about. I mean, they could come down with a 
sporadic version, but I certainly hope not. But I do worry about the other members of my husband's family because four out of six kids, that's, it's kind of insane when you think about it. It is. That's probably the, the most I've heard of in one family with the familial. That's a lot, especially. And, and sub, an undiscovered you know, reason and an undiscovered reason. I, I've met other families who have an uncle and a cousin and maybe a brother or two or, or whatever, but it's almost always identified as the SOD uh, one genetic mutation or some of the newer mutations they found, those have not been found in, in uh, our family. So we just have no idea where this stupid disease came from that's knocking out my husband's family. No no clue at all. So, uh, yeah. So was anybody has anybody in your husband's family ever had ALS, or was his a sporadic case completely? <laughs> His was sporadic, but what I found out in the last year since the Camp Lejeune water contamination lawsuit has come out mm -hmm. publicly, um, my husband was stationed there for three years. Okay. And I've had every lawyer coming out of the woodwork. I guess they, they get um, records, you know, of, of the soldiers and their families that were stationed there at the time. So it's, it's possible, you know, he was there uh, at when he served, typically a, a time period to be on a base was two years with the Marine Corps. And so he was there three. He was there an extra year. So there's that possibility. But it's a little tough. My husband grew up in foster care and his biological family is a nightmare. So um, I'm not aware um, that there's ALS in the family, but I know that there was a uh, brother that died from something neurologic when he was a child. Uh. Um, but his his mother is very educated and really couldn't give me too many um, details. I, I don't know if they ever came to the bottom of what he died from, but yeah, and that's basically all the information that I have from his family history. Well, what was... Um... I always like my guests to talk about how the pals was before ALS. You know, did he have a history of health issues or was he relatively a healthy person? Was he athletic, not athletic, or just, you know, tell us something about his health before things started going down. And, uh, and so we can kind of, I always just like to see if there's parallels, I guess, between different people. Yeah. Well, in all honesty, our, um, our getting together was a little of an unusual nature. Um, he was a, uh, grew up in foster care and had uh, not too great of a childhood. Um, back in the 60s, the foster care system was horrendous, more so than it even is today. I was going to say it um, still is in some ways. And I was a foster parent. My husband and I had foster kids for years. And my, my son, okay, so who, is, who has just turned 30... He was our foster son for two and a half years before we adopted him at age Aww. seven. So it's near and dear to my heart. But yeah, there's some messed up foster care systems in this country for sure. Yeah, they they are. And uh, he was bounced around a lot. Mm. Um, so he ended up, by the time he was 16, he ran away from the foster home that he was in at that time. And hitchhiked across the country and joined a carnival before he went into the military. He got in some legal trouble. And back then, they would give you a choice, either go to juvie or sign up for the military. Mm -hmm. So he chose to go into the Marine Corps, um, 
when he came out, he started doing drugs again and ended up uh, being, you know, into drugs and alcohol. Um, he had robbed a turkey hill at gunpoint, so he was a convicted felon. Anyway, we ended up just being work friends, and um, he was trying to get my stepchildren out of foster care because they, they were put in the foster care system. His ex-wife was a prostitute. And through helping him, uh, getting the children out and uh, giving him a place to stay in the parenting process, it's a long story. I had to go to court and uh, commit to overseeing him parenting his kids for a time period. We ended up falling in love and we were happily married for 20 years. We raised um, his four children and my two together. And um, we, we were through a tremendous amount. And I always say the more stuff you go through as a couple, sometimes it separates you and other times it creates a bond that is unpenetratable. And we were blessed to have that um, before he died. You know, it was hard for me to see him go that way because he only had 20 years of the 54 where he was really happy, Yeah. you know, um, and, and had any kind of a semblance of a normal life whatsoever. My stepchildren, unfortunately, all had issues. So it was a, that, those 20 years were a trial in that regard. But at least he had that. He was relatively healthy, but he, I always felt like he had a fragility about him. You know, when he would get sick, it would take him longer to get better. Um, he was uh, 120 pounds when we, when we started raising our children together. So he was a slight build. He beefed up a little bit through, through our marriage, but he was a, a small, <laughs> a small <laughs> guy with not much, much excess on him. Um, and he did have a motorcycle accident, uh, that was pretty traumatic in 2008 where he broke uh, multiple bones. He had a helmet on, so his head was okay, but everything else was pretty busted up mm. and he had multiple surgeries for that. Um, so that, that's pretty much, oh, and he also had ulcers. He did have ulcer problems. Um, he had some, some bleeding at one one time we had to go to the emergency room. They weren't sure he was going to make it because they couldn't do surgery until they got the bleeding to stop. And they had to, they had to put the tube down. And, and that was a little bit of a nightmare. But he would have these, like he, he was relatively healthy in between, but he had these traumatic events, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm, that occurred. Mm -hmm. The motorcycle accident, you know, obviously that was an accident that occurred. But, you know, he did have some... He also suffered from sleep apnea. He had to have the surgery for that um, in our early part of our relationship. So, yeah, he had some stuff going on, different things. Well, and I would think that that could lead to excess inflammation in different parts of the body. We don't know how it all fits together, but always just always curious to see. So if he passed away in September 2016, when was he diagnosed? What, what year? So he was diagnosed on uh, January 13th, 2015. So he lived 19 months. Wow. He um, went really he had, fast then. He, yes. He had the rare manifestation of the respiratory onset. Okay. Um, I and, call it bulbar. Yeah. And we, yeah. 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 So he, he spoke right up until he died. Uh, well, until he went in the coma in the hospice facility. Um, and he could walk and use his arms 
until he went into the coma. But I, you know, once he was diagnosed, there were things that were occurring then that I realized were diaphragmatic. Like uh, we would be sleeping and all of a sudden I'd feel like this huge movement. And uh, after he was diagnosed, when it would happen, I would stay awake for a while. And so he would be sleeping. His body would make this massive like convulsive movement after he would stop breathing like it was restarting again. And um, it wasn't it wasn't typical sleep apnea, because he had the major sleep apnea surgery 20 years before, as I said, he had his uvula removed, the palate raised, he had a deviated septum corrected, the tonsils out all in one surgery. So it was definitely it was definitely diaphragmatic. And he had that diaphragmatic hernia. Okay. Start, I started no, I started noticing that about four years, maybe three years before he was diagnosed. When he would do it up, he had that huge bulge that was vertical from, you know, the breastbone all the way down to his abdomen. And I thought, wow, that was kind of strange. It was like a weakness mm-hmm. in the wall. And, you know, as as the diagnosis came and I started putting all these things together, I realized that that was probably all the beginning of the respiratory onset because for him, um, it was definitely the diaphragm was affected, especially when he would lay down at night. And then because of the lack of oxygen, I I would have to check his oxygen during the night. And a lot of times it would go down into the 60s when he was sleeping into the 60%. And um, then a year later, Uh, January, February of 2016, he started one day, he had breakfast at the dining room table. And he's like, quick, get me a bag, get me a bag. And I got him a bag. And he brought up the breakfast. And I'm like, do you feel sick? And he's like, No, it was the strangest thing. It was just like, I felt it coming up. Mm. And then a couple of weeks went by, and it happened again. And then it started happening once a week. And then it started happening multiple times a week. And by May, he could no longer keep any solid food down. We it sounds like gastroparesis. It sounds like gastroparesis. It was. It was yeah. 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 We talked about a feeding tube. He didn't want any feeding tubes. And then we went to his clinic visit and the doctor said, feeding tubes don't work for gastroparesis because nope. the body is actually not digesting the food. Right. I have right. partial so gastroparesis. I have partial. Oh, do you? Yeah. And that's only just recently been discovered. I have type two diabetes. So my doctor's kind of hoping it will reverse. We've done a little bit of medication change and I hope so too, because when it makes me sick, it makes me really sick. So, um, and I remember when Bill got where he couldn't, it toward the end where he couldn't digest his, he was on a feeding tube. I would have lost him three years before I did if he hadn't had a feeding tube, but it got where he couldn't digest even that anymore. So and I remember how miserable that was. So gosh. So what did you guys do? Did he get the uh, nutrition through his veins then until the end? No, it was, it was, it was unbelievable. The ALS, association here in philadelphia our nurse she said she'd never seen anything like it jan he lived from may from memorial day weekend with no solid food till he died on september 1st he lived that entire summer with with only liquids 
Wow. Only liquids. And wow. Anything I, I don't even, wow. <laughs> any, yeah. Now, the, what they explained to me, um, the ALS nurse and, and the neurologist, was that if you or I went two weeks without food, we'd be dead. But what happens in this manifestation of ALS is that the body wants to stay alive. So right. it makes every little adjustment as it goes along all these different adjustments are going on in order for the person to stay alive. And so his body was just extremely good at adapting as he went along. Um, it, it got to the point in August, though, where the liquids were starting to come up. And mm. he was so thirsty. And every time I let him drink, you know, every drink that he wanted to drink in order to quench quench the thirst he'd be violently ill so I had to start adjusting him to ice you know to ice chips so that he could at least quench the thirst but um you know it it was the last few weeks for horror and we did end up where where we spent uh, the last eight days of his life together at the hospice center because my kids did an intervention and they're like, mom, you can't keep him at home. I mean, you're going to, you're going to go mad. He's, you know, he was being very demanding and wanting an answer why he was so thirsty and they didn't want to put him on an IV because they said that just prolongs things. He'll, he'll swell up. The the kidneys aren't functioning. They're not going to be able to get rid of the fluid, which I did all that research and I knew that that was, you know, the case. And by that point, there was no keeping him, you know, alive. So well, at the um, hospice center, we though, into- they could provide morphine and stuff like that to kind of relieve that hunger and that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's still for some reason that that thirst was terrible uh, for the, the first couple of days we were in the hospice center. And then one day. Uh, for my company, I had to do a training that no one else could do. And it was a very important client. So my sister-in-law came to the hospice center for me and stayed with them. And there was a new nurse on that day who insisted to my sister-in-law that it was cruel to not let my husband have fluids. And she gave him ginger ale and everything he wanted to drink. And by the time I got there, my sister-in-law was so upset. He had been like throwing up the whole afternoon and night. And the next morning he went into a coma. Well, I have to say whoever that nurse is needs to be retrained because when someone's in an active dying process, which your husband obviously was, you don't give the fluid. You, you don't do that. That's now that's actually the cruel thing to do, honestly. No. So. Yeah. So he went into, he went into the coma then and, um, so he was in a coma for the last three days and uh, the last 15 minutes was pretty, pretty horrific. Mm, um, sorry. Probably, probably. Yeah. Probably because the heart just didn't want to stop. Right. You know, for his heart was just really pretty strong and um, yeah, but they, they can't, as soon as the, the last 15 minutes, as soon as that breathing started um, to occur, Right. They uh, they came in with a bol- a bolus of morphine and then then he was uh, gone pretty quickly after that. So my husband that was last uh, uh, experience. Yeah, my husband's last couple of days were horrific and morphine wasn't working. 
they'd put it in his mouth, it would come back up because his body couldn't take anything. So they finally brought in an injection, which helped because he was convulsing. It was horrible. And then they informed Aww. me that, that they had no more injections of morphine. It would be Monday before they could get it. And this is going into a weekend. I'm like, what do you mean? You don't have any more. Um, I wound up saying I'm going to take him to the hospital. And uh, hospice is like, you can't take him. I'm like, oh, I'm taking him to the hospital. And you're going to pay for it because you're the one that ran out of medication that helps him. And he's having seizures. And it's ridiculous. So uh, I had him transported to the hospital and a doctor that knew of our situation agreed to take him on and take over. And she got him the injected morphine. And for a little while, it calmed things down. But even then, it wouldn't work. And all that fluid and secretions that had built up in him started coming out of literally every crack of his body and his ears, every just literally everything. And um she asked permission to give him fentanyl, which I was like, oh my, but they did. They gave him a little tiny bit in his wrist because his veins were gone and it immediately calmed the seizing down. And he was on, he was, as far as I know, he was completely unconscious and unaware. His body though, you, when you said the heart didn't want to give up, his heart was strong too. And I think his body was just fighting like the body does. And, but the fentanyl allowed him to, relax and i hadn't slept at that point in two or three days so they posted a nurse that doctor did in that room with me so i could actually sleep a little bit and watch they watched bill you know kept him suctioned while he was sleeping and then several hours after that it started up again and nothing they did would work and i asked them to have the doctor come back and this was like getting close to like midnight or something like 10 or 11 at night and I begged her, I said, can you give him the fentanyl again? Because that's the only thing that has stopped this and something's got to stop it. I mean, I knew he was going to die, but it was like he's writhing all over the bed, but yet he's unconscious. And it was just horrible. It was a horrible thing to watch. And um, and I said, yes, I'm sure. And by that time, they had put a central IV in his neck. And I didn't think, oh, they gave it to him in his wrist before, but when they gave it to him in his neck, it was probably less than five seconds and he was gone. He died. And I had to seek counseling for that because I thought I killed him. <laughs> I had to finally realize he was dying and you made it easy. And it took me a while to get to that point. But yeah, we, we didn't have a, a peaceful ending and it was hard. Um, I'm glad for the people who have that kind of ending, but that was not our experience. Uh, and Bill was... You know, he was not old. He was in his 40s when he was diagnosed. So he made it seven years till he passed away. But, yeah, you don't always get that peaceful ending. But it sounds like, you know, the same thing. You, you didn't have a peaceful ending either. But, um, and that, that sucks no. for both of us. <laughs> yeah. It really, yeah, it really, it really does. And, it, you know, I, I'm sure you would agree. You don't realize the trauma that's, that's going to cause you, you know, mm -hmm. until after they're gone and after the funeral's gone. And, and honestly, and I know you hear this over and over again, and you probably felt the same way. I was so numb that first year that I really didn't even start grieving, I don't think. That's why that year two is the year, worst. <laughs> yeah, same here. That second year, I, I didn't think I was going to make it. Like yeah. it was to the point where 
if I had gotten cancer or something, it wouldn't have even bothered me. You know, hey, I was the same way. I was just like, if anything happens to me, I don't care. I, I literally, I let my health go. I, you know, I, I didn't care. I, I worked because I had to survive and ALS financially devastated us completely. I had nothing left when he died. I had to start over in my late fifties, start everything over new career, new everything, find somewhere to live, Aww. figure out how to make it. Um, so the first year, I think I was in a fog and thankfully really because i think being in that fog allowed me to dig my heels in and do what i needed to do i had helped him survive for seven years and then i had to help myself survive and figure out how to keep going but yeah year two after all the first anniversaries passed i think that's when it kind of started hitting me oh my god i'm actually having another christmas without him oh no it's a new year's without him it's you know, and then those things start happening. I, I totally agree. And I I see it all the time in the widows groups that we're both in on Facebook that, you know, people that second year just stinks. You know, it does. It just stinks. But I guess it's something we all have to go through at some point. And, you know, we pick up. I'm doing great now. It's been six years. Uh, you know, I finished another degree and working on another one and changed my whole entire career and I have a career that I absolutely love have most of my friends are retiring I'm nowhere near ready to retire I don't feel like retiring I you know I picked up new hobbies and scuba diving is my new passion so I scuba dive as often as I can and oh that's great I love it yeah I up until this last weekend I was going every weekend down to the Gulf of Mexico and diving but now with school starting back at the university I'm so busy that I haven't gotten to go, but I hope to go again in another week or so. Uh, I'm working on an advanced certification, but scuba diving probably gave me a lot of my life back. I have found so much joy doing that. And then my daughter's given me two beautiful grandchildren. Uh, I have a four-year-old and a six-month-old that I just adore. And I wish Bill was here for that. But um, so life is actually good. And I didn't think it ever would be good again. I, I didn't. I couldn't imagine living after 34 years with him. I could not imagine that life would ever be good again, but it is. And so I tell people now, I promise if you just keep hanging on, keep pushing forward and don't allow yourself to get stuck in the grief and get stuck in the back in, in the backside, just keep looking forward and keep pushing and making yourself do it. I promise you it will get better. And it has. I mean, there was times I wanted to give up and you probably were the same way. You're just like, I'm done with this. <laughs> so what do you, so I want to back up for a second though. What, um, looking back over that year and a half and, and when he started having problems, is there, before we move on to your after part, I want to know, during that time, is there, what would you want listeners? Cause we have healthcare providers listening to this podcast. Now we have um, students that are in universities studying social work and uh, all of that, that study this podcast and these stories. So, and healthcare providers. So what would you want them to know about number one, you know, the whole diagnosis process and also the care, what could have made things better for you guys? What, what do you want these professionals and perhaps other families 
that may be just entering this journey, what would you want them to know based on your experience with, with your husband, with Billy? Well, what I'd like them to know, because I myself have a medical background, especially for the medical professionals. Yes. You know, they're so, they're so reluctant to give people diagnoses, even when they're pretty sure they're right. looking at ALS. I, we went to three different clinics in Philadelphia because I got annoyed at each one at one point or another. People would, ra- most people would rather know. Yes. If you think, if you think a person has ALS or any neurological disease, whatever it is, it's okay to say, look, it, it's almost 99% sure that this is what we're looking at. Okay. And we've got a percentage that maybe the good news would be that maybe it isn't. Right. But they want to leave you in this quandary. And my husband couldn't live in the quandary. Right. Like that's what, for, that's what pushed him to not want to go to the doctor when he was getting so sick because it was this whole cholesterol medicine. Oh, let's give it this. Let's give it that. Right. Um, he, he talked to a client that was a doctor and I didn't realize he did that. And then we went to that neurologist that treated him like he had Alzheimer's and we, he got diagnosed with ALS and then we got sent to university of Pennsylvania hospital because Jefferson didn't have an ALS clinic and then the neurologist there pulled the diagnosis back for like three months before he we went to the clinic another time because he said he thought the neurologist at Jefferson was wrong. So th- this is a horrible thing. It of is. Of course, a doctor doesn't want to tell somebody they're dying if they're not. Right. But, but if you think that it, is, that it is that and you're just a little bit not sure, let the person at least have a diagnosis. Okay. Right. Let the person at least be able to know there's something serious wrong with them, that it's not in their mind. Because when you tell them we're not sure what's going on and they have something serious and you pretty much know it, what you're doing is you're making that person go home thinking it's in their head. Exactly. And And you're delaying the possibility of getting financial help as well. For us, the local neurologist did he did a needle EMG, but I noticed because I you sound like you're a researcher too, and I am too. And I'm like, I yeah. had researched it and knew that when he did that needle EMG EMG, he should have had him engaging his muscles, and he never did that. And I never will forget when he pulled all those needles out very quickly, he said, This is not ALS. It's not ALS. I don't know what it is. It's not ALS. I think you need to have your neck fin- fixed. And it was the neck doctor, the neurosurgeon that said, No, nah, something else is going on here. Okay, so we wound up at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. It's about seven hours from here. Um, But I I took him there because one of the brothers went there and I was able to get him in there. But we were like, come on, he can't, he's not allowed to go back to work. He was an avionics technician and worked on an army base. And um, he had fallen off of a helicopter. Thank goodness he had a safety belt on because it well that would have taken care of him that day. He would have died had he not had it on. Um, they told him the doctor that wouldn't give him a diagnosis also said, well, you can't go back to work, so I'm not going to clear you. We're like, um, what about income? <laughs> And we knew if we had yeah. the, if we knew if we had the ALS diagnosis, we had we could probably get Social Security pretty fast. Um, but here we were. The doctor's like, "You can't go back to work. I'm very sorry. I don't know what's wrong with you. I'm not giving you a diagnosis." 
And I wasn't working like a full-time regular job at that point. I'm like, what? We still had two children at home. What are we supposed to do? But um, so, yeah, I mean, first of all, don't play around with people's lives. If you think there's something serious enough that you're not even going to let them go back to work, give them a diagnosis, even if it gets flipped over later. Let's go with something so we can yeah, make a plan well, and, and get some brought- help. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up the Social Security jam because at the University of Pennsylvania, the female doctor that we saw at the ALS clinic there, she made us feel like we were trying to push a diagnosis to get disability. Oh, good We Lord. didn't need, you know, I know, we, we really didn't need him to be on disability. I had a, a, a really, well, I still have the same career. I had a very good career and our children were grown, so we could have survived just on my salary. It wasn't about that at all. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and, and I can say this to my son is a doctor. Okay. And I think doctors sometimes get annoyed when patients come in and they've done their own research. Right. Okay. Cause they, they're like, you know, second half quarterbacks or whatever they call us. I forget what the term is, but, um, some of us are intelligent. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the majority of people that, that want to research things themselves are people that are intelligent, okay? And we can read just like they do. Okay, maybe we didn't go to medical school or whatever, but with some with some illnesses, okay, when you're living with somebody and you're watching how they walk every day and you're watching how they move every day, I'm sorry, but somebody's wife is going to be able to tell you more of what's going on with them when it's neurologic than you're going to be able to tell in an hour in your office. That's exactly right. Listen, they need to listen. You need to listen. Yeah, we had we had good. uh, The specialists, the neurologists up at Vanderbilt were great. Um, They did. um, They worked for Vanderbilt Hospital, but they were part of the ALS clinic. And but they were very loving and they were very caring and um, they did listen. We visited another ALS clinic in Atlanta that we were not as happy with and um because we weren't listened to so yeah like you said you may spend they may come in and blow in there and spend 15 20 minutes or maybe 30 at the most at some places you you don't know anything about my husband or my wife or my pals regard but i can tell you a whole lot if you'll just sit down shut up and listen to me I can tell you how his body did this and how his walk is and how he chokes or how his voice slurs. You know, I can tell you all this, but if you won't listen, um, you know, I I had one, one time, I can't remember, you know, you need to stay off the internet. I'm like, absolutely not. I read, uh, I go to PubMed. I read actual studies and this uh, disease has been in our family already. So I have a lot of knowledge up here probably way more than you do because I've lived it now yeah. for a while. So yeah, I really that's the that's the message I have too. I'm like, I want healthcare providers, social workers, um, home health nurses, home health home health aides. I want them to listen to us and other families. 
um, listen to what we actually already know and what we experience. And I don't know about you, but we had a lot of home care and most of our home care was actually really, really good. And it was through a hospice agency. But occasionally we get someone who wanted to pull on those arms or do, I'm like, no, no, you're going to tear what muscle tissue he has left and it hurts him. Well, he can't move. He can't feel it. I said, he's not paralyzed. His neurons don't communicate with his brain anymore. Okay. He feels everything. And he would be tossed around. I caught caught him more than once being rolled and tossed around like a rag doll, knowing he could feel everything and people, the people who work with people in the ALS world need to understand they're not paralyzed like a quadriplegic who can't or a paraplegic who literally can't probably feel most things. They feel everything, even if they can't move. And, you know, a simple wrinkle in a sheet feels like a lit match to them if they lay on it too long. And, I don't know. It, those kind of things really upset me and the patient and because they slur. I, did your husband slur or get where his voice was weak? Because they sound like maybe they're not intelligent and they start getting treated like a child, talked to like a child or people, healthcare professionals included, would talk to me in front of him as if he's not listening to every word. I'm like, can you talk to him? He's nothing wrong with his hearing. There's nothing wrong with his brain. Um, Talk to him and I will be happy to interpret what he tries to say back to you or spell out on his thing. But don't talk around him like it's not here. So that's my message. You can see I can still get upset when I think about those type things. It's been six years, but there's still things that just bug me so much. (laughs) Well, and you know what I did, Dan, because this is just the kind of person that I am. Um, when something happens like that, I, I need to let the person know they did they were wrong with what they did. So after Billy died, I went to each doctor and hospice, the hospice center and the neurologist that we were not happy with, and I an interviewing with them. And I shared how they made my husband feel good yeah and I I told them how they made my husband feel and I said uh, the reason why I'm spending my time now making these appointments and uh, meeting with you is because I I would hope you won't do this to to any other patients so that you would learn from uh, how you made my husband feel right the way he felt yeah we I have to yeah credit the the majority of the people we have the majority the vast majority were fantastic and i'm still connected to a great many of them um it was actually one of his nurses that helped me because that first year i think i already said i did not take care of myself i i literally didn't care i gained a huge amount of weight and wound up being diagnosed with uncontrolled type 2 diabetes but it was one of his nurses that I contacted one night because I was feeling really bad. And based on everything, she had me go to Walmart and buy uh, a blood glucose checker and check it. And my blood sugar was like 500. It was bad. She said, you have to go wow. to the ER. You have to go to the ER. So I drove myself because I didn't have anybody near here. <clears throat> so I drove myself to the ER and um, 
I had been telling God for months, I didn't care if I died or not, just take me so I can go be with my triplets, my firstborn and my husband who are already in heaven. My, I was thinking my grown kids will be just fine. I didn't, you know, I just was in another place. Uh -huh. And, um, but that night in the ER and I was laying there all alone and I looked down and I see the IVs in my arm and realizing that I'm by myself, it was very upsetting once they discharged me and told me that I had to start taking medication, et cetera, et cetera. And I got in the car and I broke down and I was like, okay, God, I was just kidding. I'm really not ready to die. <laughs> and I kind of got, I got my act together. And that same nurse, actually, I didn't have any health insurance myself at that point. And I said, this medication is a thousand dollars a month. I can't even take it. What am I going to do? And she had me come to where she now works, which is a, a private doctor's office as opposed to um, a healthcare facility. And uh, she said, you're going to come and we're going to get samples and I'll pay your medical bill if I have to until we get. And she did. She paid my medical bills for a few months Aww. and made sure I got the medication. But then she also taught me how to eat low carb, extreme low carb. And literally within about eight weeks, I had reversed the type two diabetes lost weight. It was probably healthier than I'd ever been. And I stayed off meds and did just fine up until I had COVID six times. And COVID changed something in my body and it got really difficult for me to control the blood sugar, even with eating no sugar and very low carb. So I agreed to go on meds and I have medical insurance now because I have a really good job now. But um, so given her credit, but some of his CNAs that took care of him. I still am in contact with them because they loved him. He was just this bright light. Even when he Aww. couldn't talk, just his look at you and his smile uh, made a lot of people happy. And he touched a lot of people. So I have to thank them. But then I've heard horror stories from other people about, I mean, we had a few that weren't great, but, and that's those that I, that I'm talking about when I say things are not good, but most of mine were good and we were very blessed to have some really good ones. And Bill spent his last couple of years actually in a nursing home because my back was going out. I had a minor aneurysm. Doctors like this disease is going to take you out before it takes your husband out, that kind of thing. So we, he, he was like, I don't want this to kill me and you. And he had to spell it out because by then he had no voice. And so found a really good nursing home close by. And it wound up being great. He lived three years there, actually. We thought he wouldn't live a year. He actually got better, not better in terms of the disease, but because he had really great care all the time, better than what I could give him individually. It actually got better for him. He, And that particular facility had an amazing recreation director. And it was like Disney World in there, I swear. Uh, all day, every day, there was something cool going on. And he was right there in the middle of it. I mean, you know, in his power chair, Aww. he was right in the middle of it. And um, it wound up being a good thing for us. It's not a good thing for everybody. And all facilities aren't like that one. Um, in fact, most aren't like that one. That one is an anomaly and I know it. Um, but, you know, his last three years were good in that way. And it actually allowed me to get some life back uh, as well. I went back to work in my original career, which was um, journalism or news reporting. And I did that for a little while, but then I realized he was going downhill pretty quick. 
And I thought, hmm, I'm working 60 hour weeks. I'm 10 minutes from him, but yet I'm never going in to see him. But every other day, because I'm so tired and I'm busy, I finally said, you know what? I have to stop and go be with him. And I'm glad I did because I, I left at the end of March that year and he passed away in June. So I didn't have him much longer. So I know I made the right decision. But then when he died, my job was already filled. And all of a sudden I was unemployed with nothing. And it took me a couple of years to get through that and to recover. And now I'm doing really good. And like I said, I'm happy. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Life After That. Please join us again next week for Cynthia and Billy's second part as Cynthia discusses how she's carried on with life since Billy passed away and how she has rebuilt and found a way to have yet a new relationship and is doing quite well. So join us then.